thanks for coming to our seminar today. Um, our speaker today is Florencia Torche. Florencia is an assistant professor of sociology at NYU, and she's also uh, the associate director of the Center for the Study of Wealth and Inequality at Columbia University in New York. She actually did her PhD in uh, Columbia, uh, finishing it in 2004. Florencia, I must say, is a very prolific scholar. Uh, within a very short period of time, she has already published a very impressive list of uh, articles on social mobility, on educational attainment, on associative mating, in uh, very high-profile journals like uh, the ASR, Democracy, and so on. Um, the forensic is not one who just download an art, a data set and then do secondary analysis. Uh, she also she has also directed a very large scale survey in Mexico and in her native uh, Chile. Um, today she's going a bit further from the area of research for which she is already very well known. Um, she's going to talk about the effect of maternal stress on birth outcome, exploiting a natural ex uh, experiment. So. <coughs> Thank you so much, Wing. Uh, thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here and to share this uh, piece of research with uh, you guys. Like uh, Wing me uh, uh, mentioned, uh, this is a relatively uh, new uh, line of research for me, and I've grown uh, increasingly interested because I believe it's extremely important. Um, so you tell me what you think. I mean, this is a great time to present this because I'm, you know, collecting comments uh, to uh, revise the, the paper. Uh, okay, so um, what I'm going to do today is to uh, use a natural experiment to assess a causal relationship. As you may know, uh, asserting causality is rather tricky, right? In the social sciences, we try very hard. We do it with relative degrees of success. Uh, so uh, that's 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 what I'm gonna uh, try to do. Uh, uh, the substantive motivation is the following. Um, so there's growing awareness in the biological and the social uh, sciences that early circumstances are extremely important uh, for uh, individual outcomes throughout the life cycle, right? What happens, that, that has makes uh, a lot of intuitive sense. What happens uh, early in life to you uh, shapes, affects how you do consequently, subsequently. <clears throat> and it may shape it dramatically if there is cumulative processes of advantage or disadvantage. So, um, so sociologists are increasingly concerned with, with uh, what happened to you early in life. But this concern doesn't have to uh, stop uh, or start, depending on if you count backwards or forward. Uh, at birth, right, um, there's, there's a relatively new line of research uh, that we could call early origins uh, that uh, suggests that in utero circumstances uh, are highly consequential for uh, individual outcomes. So what happens to you, what you're exposed to, your environment when you're in utero matters uh, for uh, how you do in life later, later on. Um, and like I said, uh, can, can 
really establish trajectories of advantage and disadvantage. So what I'm going to uh, do today is to uh, focus on one of uh, these uh, conditions of circumstances that may affect people and do affect people when they're in utero, that is maternal stress. And uh, I'm going to focus on one outcome, potential outcome from this uh, uh, environmental characteristic or circumstance, uh, birth weight. Right, birth weight is a very early, the, the earliest outcome that we usually measure together with others. So why, why these two uh, factors? Uh, why stress? Well, uh, stress is uh, a highly prevalent in contemporary societies, and there's no sign that this is going to decline. And second of all, for those of us interested in inequality and stratification, stress is uh, highly stratified by a socioeconomic advantage, so that less advantaged people in terms of socioeconomic status, but also race and ethnicity and other indicators of advantage are uh, usually more exposed, more vulnerable to stress, right? Oh, by the way, uh, any questions, feel free to uh, stop uh, me and let me know, as, as little as it may be, so that we are all in the same uh, page. Um, Okay, so that, that's, that's the why, why I'm concerned with stress in this particular exercise. Uh, why uh, birth weight? Um, as I mentioned, birth weight is one of the earliest outcomes that we can uh, measure. And it is, a, it, it is a very important one because uh, stress has been shown to be causally related not only associated, but causally associated with a bunch of uh, outcomes later in life, such as, well, the clearest one, and we knew about this, you know, we have known for a long while, uh, infant mortality, right? Lighter babies are a lot more likely to, 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 to die uh, very early on, but also physical and mental health, uh, cognitive development, uh, uh, IQ, educational attainment, employment status, wages, earnings, welfare use, and the list keeps growing. Not surprisingly, because uh, the early outcomes, so if, if stress affects early cognitive development, that has ramifications, right? So the outcomes extend over the life uh, cycle. Um, okay, so, so this, is, this is the question I'm going to uh, address. Uh, let me, because many of uh, you, well, of us, uh, are, were not trained in the biomedical sciences, let me say a word about the mechanisms uh, potentially linking uh, stress and birth outcomes, right? The question of interest. So uh, the, the mechanisms linking stress and birth weight and other birth outcomes, we're going to talk about a, a couple here, I'm going to explain that in a second. Uh, are uh, physiological and endocrine, and you know this is very clear. You don't know, need to know all this, but it, it, it will it will help uh, 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 formulate the hypothesis that we're going to be testing. So when 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 us when we uh, perceive a threat and the uh, the stress reaction starts. Uh, things happen first in your brain, right? In your hypothalamus, uh, there is the release of this corticotropin-releasing hormone, 
which in turn uh, induces the production of adrenocorticotropic hormone by the pituitary gland, and that in turn uh, induces the production of cortisol by uh, the adrenal uh, glands. And uh, the, the cortisol and these hormones involved in this process, not surprisingly, are called the stress hormones, right? Because their main, one important function is to uh, react to this threat that we perceive in the environment. Uh, what's crucial for us is that this process raises the level of cortisol uh, in the mom, in the mother, and in the placenta and in the fetus, if there is a, if there is a pregnancy, right? And it is these high levels of cortisol and other uh, stress hormones that uh, may affect birth weight. Why? Because this, uh, even if this stress response is, uh, helps us survive, basically, it has uh, consequences uh, to uh, <coughs> the gestation process. In particular, it may induce the high levels of cortisol, may induce preterm delivery and or intrauterine growth restriction. So two things may happen when, when there is this reaction. Uh, the baby is delivered earlier than you know, the counterfactual scenario where there is no stress, or the baby grows less in utero. Uh, both, not, not the following, both pathways will res would result in, uh, in a lower birth weight, right? But they're different. One is you're born premature. The second is you may be born at term, but lighter, smaller. Okay, so uh, the last piece of information you should know to interpret the findings is that when in the pregnancy this process that I have just described is more consequential for the baby uh, in utero, right? Uh, uh, for, for a long time, uh, people uh, uh, had held the late in the pregnancy hypothesis or approach. They, they would say, well, what happened here is stress, uh, induce the production of this corticotropin releasing hormone, this alters the physiology of parturition, and uh, it, it produces contractions, right? So the, the, the stress matters most late in the pregnancy because it produces contractions and early delivery. Uh, uh, relatively recently, uh, this new hypothesis has been gaining, gaining uh, 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 credence, and this is um, Things are not that easy, not, not so immediate, right? And uh, stress early in the pregnancy, very early matters a lot more. Uh, is what, you know, uh, uh, obstetricians and psychiatrists mostly have been claiming. Uh, they say two things. First of all, uh, as the pregnancy advances, uh, there is a, a dampening, a weakening of the physiological response <coughs> to stress. So women experience the same circumstances, but they respond less. They're more calm, and you know, my friends who have been pregnant usually mention that they feel that, that you know, the world is falling around you, but there's something that keeps you calm, and, 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 and uh, uh, this is well shown that this is a protective mechanism, basically, for, for the women, right? To protect the pregnancy, so that this, the, the response to, to, to stress is, is lower. Um, and this protects women 
later in the pregnancy, but leaves them as vulnerable as you know, anyone else earlier on. Uh, to that, research adds a second piece of information, which is, because you see, you might be protected later on in the pregnancy, but still something has to happen to you earlier on in the pregnancy that leads to a preterm birth or intrauterine growth restriction for the hypothesis to hold, right? So the research has shown that early maternal stress, meaning stress experienced earlier, early, very early in the pregnancy, uh, even before many women know they're pregnant in many cases, is a trigger for the, ex, uh, for, uh, the corticotropin releasing hormone gene expression in the placenta. And this in turn initiates a biological clock that, that leads to preterm labor. It's very interesting because what happens here is the one experiences acute stress early on, nothing happens then, but there's a message sent to the genetic information, sent to the placenta. And this uh, uh, leads to early delivery, you know, a few months later. So that we have this competing uh, hypothesis. Um, it could be either way or both. I, I didn't know coming in, right? So, uh, <clears throat> so okay. Uh, as I've tried to convey, um, maternal the re the potential relationship between maternal stress and birth <laughs> outcomes. Is very important, and there is a little industry of uh, research dealing with it. There, there are literally hundreds of papers examining this association, the association between maternal stress and outcomes. Um, problem is uh, the so-called selectivity problem, right? Um, most, the large majority of the studies are observational, meaning they take a group of moms, uh, they ask them whether they experience stress during their pregnancies, and they compare them with moms that say, no, no, I didn't experience any, any stress. Um, even if they add controls for the usual suspects, where the mom smoked, uh, you, you know, markers for advantage and things like that, there is a lingering question if there is any unobserved factor that on which the mothers who experience or report stress are selected on, right? Such as genetic traits, personality traits, uh, behavioral traits, you name it. Uh, so, so this creates this very thorny problem, which is, uh, is it really stress? Or is it this unobserved factor that we cannot measure, we are not aware of, that's, that's <coughs> causing uh, you know, spurious association? Um, a, a, a more recent line of research in other areas, uh, <coughs> in order to address these problems, uh, um, has uh, exploited natural experiments, right? The idea is that there is this exogenous event that is completely or arguably, <laughs> and correlated with these unobserved factors that may characterize mothers. Um, and they use this event as an instrument for stress. So the idea is to look for something that causes stress, but that is uh, not correlated with individual characteristics, maternal characteristics, right? 
this standard instrumental variable approach, right? That's, in a way, you're looking for something that is randomly allocated to anyone. It, you're not correlated with any particular characteristics of the mothers, uh, so that you could treat that as an experiment, even if it's not producing a lab. Okay, so easier said than done, right? And this, this is search for this holy grail of the perfect instrumental variable. I'm gonna say, um, I'm going to say the following. I'm going to claim that um, a very strong earthquake is such variable. And I'm going to use a very strong earthquake as an exogenous shock, as an exogenous source of stress that I would claim is not correlated with any characteristics of the women who experience the earthquake and therefore stress based on the earthquake, right? Uh, this is a very bold claim and I'm gonna try to back it up, right? Uh, so let me tell you a bit about this event that I'm using. This is called the Darabaka earthquake. It took place in uh, June 2005 in the northern region of my native uh, Chile. Uh, which uh, has a population, this area, the Tarapacá area, of uh, around 270,000 uh, people, right? It was really a major disaster. Uh, its, its intensity was 7.9 in the moment magnitude scale. This is like the Richter scale, but it replaces it because the Richter is obsolete. And it, to give you an idea, the devastating Sichuan earthquake, you're familiar with it, I, I, I suppose, last year was of the same magnitude, right? So we're talking about a very, very violent shake um, uh, here. Um, in spite of its violence, the, the, the consequences were rather limited. Of course, the loss of anything, and in particular, any life is a tragedy, but if we compare this event with other events of similar intensity, such as the Sichuan earthquake, this was very limited. So only 11 deaths, 130 people injured, 180 dwellings damaged. It had very minor effects on unemployment. It had an effect on the economy, but the economy in the region, uh, the, the output, economic output is mostly based on mining, right? And mining is capital intensive, not labor intensive. So not so many people were affected. Um, little change in the incidence of disease that's usually associated with an earthquake or a natural disaster that kills more people than the actual disasters such as acute respiratory infection, diarrhea, and so on and so forth. Um, let alone the fact that uh, with the current technology, it's not possible to predict where or when an earthquake would occur, right? I mean, there are areas in the world where the, uh, earthquakes are more likely. We know that very well, right? And Chile is one of those, California is one of those, Japan, and so on. Uh, however, having said that, it's impossible to predict when or where the earthquake is going to happen. So we, that's. Uh, a rather plausible uh, reason for random <coughs> allocation, right? No one knows that it's gonna, an earthquake is going to happen to them. And all these characteristics result in the following, result in very little spillover effects of the earthquake, besides stress, right? Um, 
this is important because we want to attribute the outcomes of the earthquake to stress and not to say massive economic dislocation, right? Migration, things like that. Well, this particular event is quote-unquote useful, it's a tragedy, but we can explore this tragedy to understand something of uh, something uh, uh, to, to shed light on this question. Because there's little spillover effects, uh, we rule out these alternative paths of influence on the outcome of interest, in this case, birth weight, uh, other than stress, maternal stress. Any, is this fully clear? Okay, so let's go. Let's go then with this background information to the to the findings. To the uh, to, let me say a word about how I did this, and then go. Let's go to the findings. Um, so my data is comes from uh, the all the uh, Chilean birth certificates from 2004 and 2006, provided by the Ministry of uh, Health. Uh, so I have a census of births in the country for, for these three years. Um, uh, in order to set up my research, I need information about the intensity of the earthquake in different regions, right? That's my source of variation. So uh, I do that because the birth certificates have information on the mother's county of residence. So I match that information with information about the earthquake intensity provided by the Chilean uh, Office of uh, National Office of National Emergencies. They, they, you know, they care a lot about earthquakes, so they have a lot of information of how strong the earthquake was in different regions of the country, right? So you have a nice ordinal variable there. And I used to do that the, the Mercalli scale, as opposed to uh, Richter or the moment magnitude scale, this Mercalli scale. Anyone has heard of the Mercalli scale before? You guys don't have earthquakes here. <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, there are two types of scales to, to measure uh, uh, intensity or magnitude of the earthquakes. Uh, moment magnitude and Richter measures the energy released from the Earth. Uh, I, I don't want that to capture variation across regions, right? I want a measure of the, how the earthquake was felt by people, how much damage it caused, how much destruction it caused, and so on. That's Mercalli. And because it's Mercalli, it's, uh, because it, it's focused on how the earthquake was felt, it varies across regions, otherwise it wouldn't vary, right? It would energy release when it were, where it was released, that's it. Okay, so there's this ordinal scale. I divide it in, into a dichotomous uh, scale, or no, scale, variable. And I say above, above this magnitude, uh, sorry, this intensity strong, I'm gonna code it as one, so people who really felt it strongly. And below that, I'm gonna code it as zero. And this dichotomization is not arbitrary, it comes from research from uh, geologists uh, 
that are very concerned with how people feel the earthquakes, believe it or not. And they say that this is a categorical thresh threshold right here. They say this is key for two reasons. First of all, starting in this intensity, the earthquake is felt by all, regardless, right? And secondly, uh, above this level, damage starts occurring, right? So it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a categorical threshold. Then I want to test for the sensitivity of using this dichotomization as opposed to any other, right? But it's, it's based on that, on that uh, information. All right, so like I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, people who receive the treatment, meaning the, the earthquake, the treatment group using experimental language, are those living in the counties where the intensity was strong to ruinous. All these, you know, uh, uh, categories in the Mercalli scale. And then I'm gonna distinguish five time points. So people who, uh, people, uh, infants who were born before the earthquake. So if you were born before the earthquake, you're not affected by the earthquake, right? You are out, I mean, your birth weight is not affected. Other things, maybe. Uh, because I'm interested on where in the pregnancy, when in the pregnancy stress is more consequential, I'm gonna distinguish three trimesters in chronological order. If you experience the earthquake during your third trimester, second trimester, first trimester of gestation, and then those infants conceived after the earthquake for five time points, right? Um, you know, number of cases, and my dependent variables, because I'm interested in mechanisms, are gonna be birth weight, and the two possible roads to birth weight, right? So you can be very low birth weight because of your gestational age, if you're premature, or because you're Wait for gestational age. That's the intrauterine growth restriction. If you're light, if you're light, even if you're born at term. I use a difference in difference estimator. Have you guys seen that in your classes yet? No, <laughs> <laughs> There's this, mm. <laughs> should I say no? So, um, so I'm gonna say a word, because it's simple enough, right? Uh, bear with me here and pay attention. So, so, uh, okay. So let's start above. Say Y bar is the average of whichever outcome we're interested in. In this case, what's the outcome we're interested in? Birth weight. So the, uh, the mean birth weight, right? Four, start above. Subscripts are whether the woman was in the treatment or the control area. Subscript is when. We're gonna simplify things to the bare minimum, so we're gonna say there is treatment, control, earthquake, not earthquake, and we're gonna see after, before. We know that's not that simple because I have five time points, but you know it doesn't matter for, for practical purposes. So we can have, let's start with from the top, birth weight for the treatment area before, birth weight for the treatment area after, right? And then I have a control area, those people who are not affected by the earthquake before and after. Well, the difference in difference is literally the difference in differences. So in the treatment area, what happened from before to after? 
right? Minus what happened from before to after the earthquake in the control area. And for those of you who like these type of things, you should intuitively start seeing it, although it's not entirely obvious if you have never seen this. The idea is that, so we're comparing changes over time in two groups, right? From before to after in the treatment and the control area. But the, the coefficient, the parameters that we're really after is if there are differences in the change in the treatment area versus the control area, right? Indicating that something changed in the treatment area, but it didn't change in the control area. This is very important because then we model it using a simple interaction to capture these difference in differences uh, because this method controls for two things that we want to control. First of all, we control for any factor that would characterize the treatment area, but that doesn't change over time. Say the treatment area, you know, people live at higher altitudes. And we know very well now that if you live at higher altitudes, babies are on average lighter, right? So we want to control for that. But we also control for anything that happens after the treatment that affects both groups, right? So there's a huge recession hitting the country right after the treatment. Well, maybe everyone lost weight because, you know, there, were, they, there, was, there was this issue. So we want to control for those things and just get the difference in the treatment group minus the control group, right? And this um, is captured by the interaction between living in the treatment area and being exposed to, uh, to the earthquake, being after the earthquake, right? Okay, no more numbers. Let's move to the analysis. What matters here is the way we're gonna measure the effect of this uh, natural experiment, this shock, this exogenous shock, is by the coefficient associated with the interaction terms, right? Between living in the treatment area and being exposed to the earthquake at each one particular, uh, each one of the time points, right? Different, different gestational ages. Okay, so let me start. So um, this is the first model. I'm modeling here just simple birth weight. Birth weight. Uh, do you see anything? Not much. Yes, no. I'm going to show the pictures, but uh, just a little. Uh, let me show you the numbers for this one. So uh, what we are after is the set of interactions. These are the interactions. So the five time points interacted by whether you were living in the treated area. Right? And you see here immediately, yeah. let's look just at the stars, that there is a significant decline in birth weight associated with living in the treatment area and being exposed to the earthquake very early on in your first trimester. This decline is 51 grams on average. I love this. I'm in a context where I can talk about grams without translating it to pounds and things like that, right? I can, right? <laughs> okay. Among us who are not Eurosceptics. Yeah. Okay, very good. Let me not get into that. So, um, you know, figures are a lot nicer. So here we have birth weight in grams across the four time five time points for the treatment area for the control area right 
it's very clear, right? You see not much going on in the control area, stability as it should be, because there's huge sample size here, uh, not, not a lot of you know, sample variation, whereas there's a substantive drop for the treated area concentrated, very clearly concentrated in the first trimester of gestation, important. Secondly, it's important to know that after the earthquake, things go back to as they were before, right? You're gonna say, I mean, I would say 50 grams. What is 50 grams? It's not, what is 50 grams? <laughs> uh, it's, it's not so much, but you have to think of the following. This is a population level treatment effect that we call, if you are interested, if you causal interest, you call it an intent to treat. That means we're not measuring it among the women who experience stress. We don't know who experience stress, right? We measure it at the population level. Some people did experience stress, some people did not. That's very reasonable. So you water down the treatment effect on those who experience stress to put it loosely. So, at that level, it is rather massive, rather massive. You know, uh, the outcomes of intervention programs for pregnant mothers are, uh, so a comparable uh, program in, in the US called WIC is 63 grams, but only among women who receive the treatment. Now we're talking about the entire population, 51 grams is not negligible at all. Why is the blue line usually above the other line? Ah, very good, very good. Uh, so uh, the, the, this is, of course, an average of the, of the rest of the country, right? And it just so happens that this area is in the north. First of all, it's, uh, it is at sea level, and that has some effect, but not, 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 it doesn't explain the entire gap. Second of all, it's an area, this is my French were obstetricians and so on. I, I, you know, I believe what they say, but they say that there is a certain minerals in the, you know, water that people consume regularly and so on that are supposedly good for 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 uh, uh, nutrition and health. And many people in the rest of the country don't get those minerals in the same uh, level. Um, it has also to do with the socioeconomic makeup of the different groups. On average, you know, this is lower and so on and so forth. Um, but that, your question wing raises a couple important points. First of all, uh, we're not concerned about this gap, because of course, in the methodology controls for that, right? Uh, but we are concerned with this gap in the following sense. Well, say, and we all know that, I haven't said anything about it, that the ideal birth weight of infants is this one. It might be very well, right? So you have a drop in this, baby. the babies are born already, you know, rather heavy, you have a drop, you bring it back to normality, say, if that was the case. Who cares about this drop, right? So I'm gonna, uh, after this, I'm gonna show you uh, what happens if I treat the dependent variable as, instead of mean birth weight, as the probability of being born low weight. That is, less, being born less than 2,500 pounds, no, 2,500 kilos, no, 2,500 grams. 2,500 grams, which is less being born lighter than five pounds, give or take, right? I'm gonna use that, that formulation because uh, much research argues that if you're born below that, bad th things happen to you, right? So it's the additional evidence for the fact that this drop is not inconsequential. 
hands. So um, I'm, I'm going to try to learn a little bit of the mechanism. So birth weight, you know, you can be born birth weight because you are born at, you know, not uh, premature. So when I repeat the exercise for gestational age, I also find the same negative effect. And you see pretty much the same story, right? Then I'm going to address the other mechanism, intrauterine growth restriction, which I formulate as weight by gestational age, right? Weight divided by gestational age. I also find a negative effect that it's in the verge of significance, suggesting that it's likely that the main mechanism is reduced gestational age. It's in the verge of significance, but it's not irrelevant. Finally, then, to test this suggested mechanism, what I do is I re-estimate the model explaining birth weight by controlling for gestational age. And when I do that, this drop declines substantially and becomes insignificant, right? Suggesting then that a very plausible mechanism for the reduction in birth weight is that babies are born earlier than otherwise they would be, which is rather consistent with the hypothesis of the biological clock, right? Because this all happens very early in the pregnancy. Uh, but but the, then I'm going to. Uh, uh, I'm going to go back to your question and say, well, do we really care? Well, let's, instead of using as dependent variables the mean birth weight measuring grams, mean gestational age measuring weeks, let's use the dichotomous version of these variables. Uh, I use the dichotomous version of these variables because uh, they are uh, widely used in the medical, the research community, in the lay community, and they're supposed uh, to identify a threshold below <coughs> which things are bad for you, right? So are you going to use low birth weight? So if you're born uh, lighter than 2,500 grams, right? Then I'm going to use preterm delivery, which is if you're born uh, before 37 weeks of gestation. The norm, the average is 39 to 4. And then intrauterine growth restriction, if you are born below the 10th percentile in the weight by gestational age a, a, a metric, right? I use a linear probability model because there are problems with the nonlinear models and lodging in this particular setup because the interactions are hard to interpret. You don't want to get into that, but this is the correct way of doing it. Um, and I see what happens. So for low birth weight, um, so this is the intercept. So on average, in the control area, there is it's a linear probability model. So we, we read it, uh, the, the parameter estimates as percentages, right? Probabilities. So in the control area, before the earthquake, 5.3% uh, uh, of the babies are born um, low weight, right? This is expected. Um, 
Well, what happens in the first, for those babies exposed to the earthquake in the first trimester of gestation, there is a substantial decline of 1.8 percentage points. This is not irrelevant at all. So among those babies, the percent being born low weight is not 5.3, it is 7.1, right? So it's a substantial increase, 7.1. Okay, and then we repeat the exercise as we did before for the other dependent variables. The, do the chances of being born preterm increase? 6% of the babies are born preterm in the baseline control group, and this increases to 8.6%. The intrauterine growth restriction is negative, but it is not significant, supports the idea that the main mechanism is gestational age. And then when we control for being born preterm, sorry, this should be in this one, right? We control for the chance of being born preterm, the coefficient becomes insignificant, suggesting that's very likely that the mechanism uh, driving a low birth weight is being more preterm, and secondly, suggesting that whatever the baseline levels are for the treatment and control area, uh, the stress elicited by the earthquake was actually negative. If we do believe that being more uh, low birth weight or preterm is a, is a marker for this advantage, and you know, doctors strongly believe that. Um, How we do? How much longer do I have to go? Five ten minutes. Okay. So let me see if what can be more useful for you. No, maybe I'm going to skip this. This is another method of measuring the same thing. And let me go to the different checks that one has to do in order to gain reassurance that what you're measuring, uh, oh, well, you're getting reassurance about your measures, another problem is, what you're interpreting is accurate, right? Okay, so I've shown that there is a substantial decline in birth weight or <coughs> increase in the probability of being born low birth weight for those babies who had the bad fortune of experiencing the, experiencing the earthquake during their first trimester of gestation, right? Which is consistent with this uh, um, uh, placental clock uh, hypothesis. Um, and I've used a natural experiment to try and uh, claim that this is a causal relationship, meaning it's not contaminated by an observed characteristics of the mothers. Um, but I guess, is there any economist in the room? Okay, an economist wouldn't be convinced at all. <laughs> so they would say, how about the exclusion restriction? It's the first thing they would say. What is the exclusion restriction? It's this hypothesis, this assumption, sorry, this assumption that I formulated informally a second ago, which is uh, that in order for the earthquake to be a good instrument for stress, I have to assume that the earthquake didn't have any effect on a stress 
other than the effect that was mediated, oh, I'm sorry, let me say it. In order for the earthquake to be a good instrument for stress, the earthquake cannot have any effect on birth weight, the outcome of interest, other than the effect that is mediated by stress, right? So I said, well, this is plausible in this context because the earthquake had a reduced spillover effect. The main hypothesis, the elephant is in the room there, is that uh, it's not stress, it's just that women were exposed to illness and disease, that they had to go other places and leave their homes, and they had an income drop, and they were hungry, and things like that, right? So uh, this event makes this hypothesis, this assumption, plausible. But anything I can do to further provide, uh, provide further evidence for this hypothesis would be uh, a good idea. So uh, I, 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 I do the following. I, I reason uh, in the following way. If these spillover effects were the ones uh, were at play, were at play, it's reasonable to think that these other things, such as a, a, a exposure to disease, uh, income drops, having to you know go to another place or being outside at night and it's cold and so on, all these things should affect lower SES women more than they should affect higher SES women. And the assumption that higher SES women have more resources to protect themselves, right? Can have access to doctors, have money in the bank, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I repeated the analysis by mother's education. So I divided by between moms with only primary and secondary schooling and moms with a college degree. And I say, well, if, if my assumption is wrong, it's likely that moms with low education as a measure of SES were more affected, right? Because they're more vulnerable. Um, and I hoped I would find not significant differences between the two as a support for my assumption. What I found was a little <laughs> unexpected. So I found this is a parameter uh, estimate of interest. I found that among highly educated moms, the drop in birth weight was very large, 118 grams. And among low education moms, the drop was substantially lower in the, you know, significant only at the point 10 level. So, no, okay, part of me was excellent. That really is consistent with the exclusion restriction. On the other hand, why, why is this the case, right? I mean, you would expect uh, that uh, more resourceful women would be more protected, or equally protected, right? Well, my, my colleagues in uh, psychology, when I talked about this, it's obvious, nothing new here. What happens, according to them, is that there's something so-called the inoculation effect, so that women with fewer resources uh, experience more chronic stress associated with economic uncertainty and so on and so forth, so the body in its plasticity adjust to that. And it takes a lot more uh, of an external stressor to produce the same stress reaction in you, right? That's their explanation. It could be. I have no idea. You know, it, it seems plausible. Um, uh, it seems plausible. 
Uh, but, but anyway, so this at least is not inconsistent with my hypothesis that the main effect of the earthquake was stress and not these other factors that could have affected uh, low education women more, right? Uh, then I, um, I dichotomized my treatment. I say, okay, above this measure of intensities, I'm gonna call it the treatment group below control. Um, but it's plausible uh, that, I mean, it's many theories would expect a dose response, uh, right? Uh, so that uh, uh, <coughs> the response increases as the strength of the earthquake increases, right? So then I use a trichotomous version of the treatment because I need in enough a large enough sample size, right? So I cannot just use the whole Mercalli scale. So the trichotomous version is treatment, then this group up to the dotted line is, I'm gonna call it moderate intensity, intensity, and the one above, I'm gonna call it, you know, low intensity or control. And I reproduce the, the analysis, and I get this. So this is control, low intensity, this is, and this is treatment. We're familiar with this, And so I divided the former controls into low intensity and in green and moderate intensity in red. Um, the findings are not inconsistent with my hypothesis, although this drop for the moderate group is statistically insignificant, right? So I would interpret this as uh, maybe the effect is not well, it's hard to say, really. It's monotonic, right? Uh, but but it's, it's complicated to say some more because we don't know how many women in each region did experience stress and so on. But at least it's not inconsistent with the dose response uh, uh, effect. Then, then, oh, this is something we can say a word about. The, the methodology I've used is based on uh, a crucial, in addition to the standard regression assumptions, is based on a crucial assumption which is called the parallel trend. This only means that there cannot be unobserved factors that would affect the trend that I'm capturing in the treatment area. So something like maybe in the treatment area there was a recession at the same time as the earthquake, right? And this recession affected only, came from something else, and affected only the treatment area, but not the control area. Because uh, this, of course, you know, violates the assumptions because you know where is this that recession or, or the treatment that caused the, the outcome. Okay, that, that's not terribly likely in these particular circumstances, but there is one reason why this could be the case. And the reason has to do with the out-migration from the treatment area as a response to the earthquake, right? So it's not that not anything happened in the area in parallel to the treatment, but that some women got scared with the earthquake, for instance, and they left the area right away, right? Why would this be a violation of this assumption? Because uh, the the, the population that would remain in the treated area is different from the 
one that started there. So it's different from the counterfactual population that there would be there had the earthquake not occurred. And it might have been the case that, say, all the more you know, wealthier women left, there's, you're inducing bias right there, right? So uh, I do an analysis of the, using another large data set called CASN, I, I analyze if people moved out from the treated area as a response to the earthquake. Um, not actually as a response to the earthquake. Between 2002 and 2006, the earthquake hit 2005. This is not perfect, but uh, it's the best we can do with the data we have. So in the treated area, it has 11.5 women left, moved from those counties. But there's you know migration everywhere, right? So compared with the control area, where 10.5% uh, of the women left those other counties. The difference is not substantial, and then many of the women who left the counties in the treated area moved to another county within the same treated area. So overall, uh, this I cannot rule, fully rule out bias, but it's rather unlikely, right? Okay, a lot of controls for compositional change using propensity score weighting and uh, county fix effects and things you don't want to deal with at the moment. Um, we can skip that. I also checked for selective miscarriage of, or abortion. Um, let's skip that for now. Um, so let me just wrap up and open this for, for comments. Um, we have said all these. The findings indicate lower birth weight among those infants in utero during the earthquake. This appears to be mediated by reduced gestational age, right, or increasing prematurity. The effect is clearly confined to the first trimester of gestation. That was very clear. Uh, so it suggests a detrimental effect of early pregnancy stress on birth weight um, via this, you know, setting up a, 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 a placental clock mechanism. Um, but this is just one single case, right? One single uh, event. So uh, now uh, further steps are to expand this research to other settings that could be reasonably claimed to be natural experiments. I'm doing it in two or three settings at the moment. And secondly, um, uh, in, in, in Chile, every citizen has an ID number. 